I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society. I'm very pleased to introduce two of our top Atlas Society intellectuals. Uh, it's actually going to be Rob Trzinski being interviewed by Richard Salzman discussing conservatives and nationalism. Uh, it's an expanded format scheduled to go 90 minutes so they can do a deeper dive. Uh, after they've done you know, so many questions, we definitely want your participation. So we'll bring you up. You can just raise your hands. Uh, after they get through their first uh, set of questions. Uh, we ask you to share the room. This should be a good topic. Uh, thanks everyone for being here. Richard, I'll throw it to you. Thank you, Scott, um, for organizing this and the Atlas Society. <clears throat> Rob, I've really been looking forward to this. I know you've written so much about it, thought so much about it. I think you're influential in this space. Um, now, you, normally at the uh, Robbie, you, can you hear me? I just want to make sure you can hear me. I can hear you just fine. But you know, we usually do this at the end. But I would rather do in the beginning. Let the audience know where to find your work. I know you're at a symposium, and just would just let people know how yeah. to get to your work before we start in. Well, the main place to go is probably the Trzinski letter. It's trzinskiletter.substack.com. It's by Substack newsletter. It's where I post pretty much everything I write somewhere else is linked to there or described there as well as my general coverage in the news and then symposium is also another subsect newsletter symposium.substack.com and that's one where i focus on political liberalism in this very broad sense uh you know and, and this is something we're getting into today of you know the all these words like liberalism and conservatism have all these different meanings that are used interchangeably when they're not interchangeable so liberalism in this sense means advocacy of a free society and trying to foster conversations uh, about that uh, among people of different persuasions. Great. And and since conservatism is typically uh, put on the rights, the right, so to speak, versus the left, there's also, Rob, you know, an interesting engagement over the years with Ayn Rand and objectivism and conservatism. So, yeah, I think at some point I'll ask you what you think of, I think it was back in 1960, she wrote something called Conservatism, an obituary, which ended up as a chapter, a chapter in uh, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, 1967. But that that was long ago and far away, it's still relevant, I think. But wh why don't we start with this? Our topic is conservatism and nationalism. Sometimes you hear them described as national conservatives or conservative nationalists, sometimes Christian nationalists. If you could, you know, kind of unpack or tell us your over our 30,000 feet, you know, view of before we dig into the deep. What is this group or this movement and your assessment of it just broadly? Yeah. So I want to start with a little bit of the context of what's been going on in politics in the last couple of decades. Good. And then go into talking about what does nationalism mean? Because it's one of these, it's, you know, we've got three terms I think we have to talk about today. Nationalism, conservatism and liberalism that have these sort of varied and confusing meanings. So let's start there with the context, which is you know, the big whipsaw, from my perspective especially, the big whipsaw of American politics in the last couple decades is that about 10 to 12 years ago, 13, probably 13 to 14 years ago now, we had the Tea Party movement. You know, this is the, the backlash to the bailouts and the, you know, the, the financial crisis, we had the bailouts. Then we had the backlash to the bailouts, which is the Tea Party movement, which was a very small government, libertarian-ish. I mean, libertarian in this, like, well, that's a fourth term that has various meanings, but uh, libertarian in the sense of being very free market, very pro-liberty. And there was this, sort of a lot of people who were 
libertarian leaning in the sense of not being really conservatives, but being more freewheeling and, and pro, pro, more consistently pro-liberty, there was a sort of rapprochement between conservatism and libertarianism. And so that went to a very small government, very pro-liberty sort of outlook uh, that influenced the right and influenced the Republican Party. And the influence was partly because it won a couple elections, right? So they're mostly off-term congressional elections. Uh, so 2010, 2014, big wave elections uh, that brought, you know, that changed the, the uh, Congress to turn it against the big government Obama agenda. So there was this sort of more libertarian lurch that the right went, in, went towards in for, for, a five, for four or five or six years. And then... Starting in 2015, 2016, there was a more nat there's been a, a very much opposite move, and I think it's a backlash to that, which is the a nationalist move that is very non-libertarian and anti-libertarian, uh, and very much the idea. I mean, there's a lot of complaints among the. I think there was a sort of religious conservative wing, and I heard a lot of complaints about how, well, look, you know, these, these libertarians got everything they wanted out of, you know, they got the tax cuts and everything they wanted. But what did we get? We got gay marriage. We got all the stuff that's, again, you know, we lost everything on our agenda. So they were very resentful of that. And the idea is we should start reasserting the, the, Christ, the, 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 the conservative moral social agenda. Uh, against and, and, and basically reject an alliance with these more libertarian people. All right, so let's talk about what nationalism means then in this, because nationalism is the term that came to be used for this. Yeah. So nationalism yeah. is one of these weird words. It has three big meanings as the way it's used, which is for, for the political scientist, nationalism refers to the idea that the nation state is the best form of organization for, for a, of political organization. Now, you might say, well, of course it's the nation state. What, what else would it be? Well, so you have to ask as opposed to what? So, you know, when national, uh, the nation state sort of first arose as a political entity in, in the, like, the 1600s and 1700s, it was as opposed to the previous sort of feudal system where you had all these little principalities and these little dukedoms and aristocracies and power was sort of spread out and amongst all these little small groups. And the idea was, no, it's better if we have these large nation states and then you have a system where each nation state has a certain uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. And in theory, we're not get, they're not always going to be invading each other. And of course, that theory didn't always work out. Um, so and now in a modern context, the nation state as a political system, so nationalism, the advocacy of the nation state, as opposed to what means usually as opposed to international organizations, as opposed to us all being, you know, uh, every country in Europe being brought into the into the European Union, or all of us being brought under the UN or something like that. So it's this idea that we you know, the nation state is the proper um, uh, political unit, and so that's that's one version of nationalism, but it's a fairly narrow political scientist version because it, you know, it doesn't tell you what kind of nation state you're going to have. It just says we should have a nation state and doesn't tell you what the organizing principles of each state would be. Uh, so it's more an international relations, you know, how, how countries relate to each other, not what goes on inside of them. The second version of nationalism, which I'm going to dispense with briefly, is nationalism is also used to refer to people who are advocates for one particular nation state. Right. So if you had, um, you know, Serbian nationalists or I'm trying to think of you know, where you have 
countries, or if, if you had a, um, a Buryat nationalist or a, a, you know, in, inside Russia, there are all these little different uh, nation states that were incorporated inside the Soviet Union. And in the fall of the Soviet Union, you had all these places asserted their independence. You know, all these Central Asian countries, all these uh, um, uh, Eastern European countries asserted their independence, the, the Baltic states. And so then you have a nationalist being somebody saying, this state, this particular country of mine should be independent. So it's not necessarily a general thing. It's, a, it's oriented towards one particular state that they think should, be, should have its independence. Now, the third sense of nationalism, though, is the one that I think is becoming relevant now, which is the idea that the nation is the fundamental unit of politics, that everything in that, that, that politics should not be organized around the individual. It should be organized around the nation and that the good of the nation, the good of the nation as a whole should be the primary focus of politics. And so as opposed to uh, and this is, you know, very much used as the sense that, you know, as opposed to individual rights, as opposed to us all being atomized individuals, they like to say that we're atomized, um, as, as opposed to us all being atomized individuals, each pursuing his own goals, we should all be organized somehow to be oriented towards the common good of the nation as a whole and the greatness of the nation as a whole. So this is a, a particular view of government that basically says it's the nation as a whole that is the main unit that should be asserting itself in politics and that, that everything in politics should be organized around the greatness and advancement and cohesion and, and unity of the nation as a whole. Yeah, now Rob, let me ask you, uh, yeah. Rob, this trichotomy is very helpful <clears throat> that you have here. The nation state is the best form of political organization. Uh, your second point about, well, then there's an argument, well, particular nation states are are better than others. And then this last point about the stress of the nation as a unit of account, a unit of uh, focus or value versus the individual. Where in this fits the kind of popular view we hear that a nation is something like, this sounds more cultural, I think. A nation yeah. is a group, of, a group of people that share, uh, you know the typical litany, they mm -hmm. share common values, history, culture, religion, maybe ethnicity. And, and it's, and the, and the role of the state seems to be something like states won't do well or survive or unless they conform in some way to this, this shared uh, group of things, if you will. I, I remember, remember when Iraq broke up into three different after the war and, and someone suggested there should be three different states reflecting the three different uh, religions or groups or so. So speak a little bit about what about that concept? Is that a is that a legitimate concept separate from the state, but yet related to whether there should be a nation state? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So, yeah, and by the way, the, the ironic, very ironically, the someone who suggested breaking Iraq apart into three separate states was Joe Biden. Was Biden. Yes, I know. Yeah, I remember that. I know. Yep. Uh, it was a particularly bad idea because it wasn't going, you know, he, this is his plan for somehow ending the war. And of course, it was a plan for, uh, for taking the war up to 11, right? Dialing it up to yep. 11. Because if you, know, what, what was the first thing these three ethnic, sort of religious states were going to be doing is they're going to be fighting each other for territory. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, but it, but it, but but yeah, but it was like it, it sounded it was like plausible to those who say there has to be some kind of correspondence yeah. between. Say, and remember when Yugoslavia broke up as well, it was it was thought that uh, so many divisions, so much balkanization that when Tito ran the place, um, you could uh, suppress all these differences. But once the authoritarianism goes away, it splits into pieces. Anyway, go, go ahead. Yugoslavia is a happier example of that, where um, after the initial fighting in the 90s, they have managed to sort of, you know, the Croats aren't fighting the Montenegrins who aren't fighting the, uh, you know, they're not all trying to kill each other anymore. Uh, there's a little prouhaha going on with Kosovo right now, but that, you know, we'll see how that shapes out. But... Um, yeah, the the so the thing is so the the there's a sort of a more genteel version of nationalism that says, well, look, we should have a nation which should have some unity, but doesn't go so far as to say. And the question is, well, how do you define that unity, right? What is the what is the defining characteristic that unifies the country? What is it that's supposed to pull us all together and give us a common identity that we can then that you know that common identity can be the thing politics is organized around. Well, ultimately, I think the answer, there, there are two answers you can give. And one is the traditional American answer, which is, well, we have an American creed. You know, we have a civic creed, or sometimes they use the term civic religion. And, you know, what pulls America together is the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, also maybe certain cultural, you know, so if you read your Tocqueville, you know, he talks about yeah. how the Americans differ from everybody else, that, you know, we're enterprising and we're entrepreneurial, and he talks about the different attitudes that Americans tend to have, right? So you can have the idea that, well, we have a common creed and it doesn't matter what race or religion you are, as long as you have this creed and you agree with this creed, you are an American. And that's been for a long time been the American answer. I mean, this is our response to mass immigration of, you know, when the Trzinskis and, and uh, by, you know, the, the Ross, the, the um, O'Rourke's, my Irish side, when all the Irish and the Polish and the Jews and all these people came over, you know, 120 years ago, we had this question, well, how do we have a unified American, how do we assimilate these people? How do we have a, a unified American identity? The answer was, well, we have certain ideas and attitudes and a culture that we, that we all uh, embrace. However, among the sort of more hardcore nationalist conservatives, one, and especially among, and especially as you get off towards even beyond them to the alt-right, there's this mocking thing that you, you know, so those of us who, who uphold that old creed say, well, America is an idea. And they keep, the nationalists, the hardcore nationalists keep scoring this. They say, America is not an idea. It's a people, it's a place. And so when you say, if, it's, if you say America is not an idea, it's a people. And, you know, if you try to define nationalism that way, you're going to start moving inexorably towards if, it, if it's, an, it's an ethnicity, right? Because, you know, if it's not an idea, what is it going to be? Well, it's going to be some quality we have that is, you know, non-ideological. So it's going to be a specific kind of people uh, uh, ethnically, you know, and it could be Northern Europeans or, or what have you, who are- yeah, and, and, on, and Rob, on, on, that, on that score, Rob, fair to say that if it's ideas, then it's something you assimilate, you come and you accept, you choose, yeah. you endorse. Whereas the ethnicity angle is, well, that's your hereditary uh, lineage. That's not something chosen. That's a big difference, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and you know, the thing is, the other thing about the ethnicity approach is it's, it's, a, it's a, a prescription for a lot of trouble. So I remember, um, I think that's right after the invasion, uh, the, the, when the Russians invaded um, uh, Ukraine a, a year and a half or so ago, one of the first countries to come out saying this is a bad idea was like Kenya. 
I said, why, why, why are the Kenyans worked up about this? And then they talked about how bad, how bad an idea it was to justify an invasion based on ethnicity. And I realized that Africa is another place in the world where there are all sorts of national borders, right, that are drawn, that are not drawn neatly yeah. to correspond to where the ethnic borders are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and this, this is a pretty problem in Europe forever and, and led to wars in Europe. And it's a problem in a lot of places in the world where you have uh, you, you have several different ethnicities living in amongst with each other amongst each other in a in, in in countries, and you know the borders have often been drawn you know by colonial authorities or after as a result as a compromise at the end of a war or however it is that these things evolved. They do not the borders between countries are not neatly drawn across ethnic lines. So the more you make ethnicity into the defining characteristic of a nation, the more you're, you're, you're really signing up for a lot of trouble. And of course, you know, religion as well, because, you know, nobody's ever fought wars about religion. Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, to, to give you an idea about how serious some of that is, now the, the nationalist conservatives, the mainstream, the more mainstream nationalist conservatives are very shy about talking about the ethnicity angle. And it's because they're more about, they're more about emphasizing the religion angle. That tradi a traditional, basically traditional morality or traditional social customs and morality is is what they define it more as. And by traditional, they generally mean in line with their religious convictions. So, it's, uh, uh, the, the Yoram Hazoni, uh, for example, who's one of yeah. these, uh, an Israeli theorist, but he's made the case for nationalism. And he's been very influential on the American nationalist conservatives, and they had a conference about a year or so ago where, where they one of the things that they argued for one of the platform point it put forth a sort of ideological or, or political platform and one of the elements was where a christian majority exists the institutions of the nation should be christian so you know basically saying arguing against separation of church and state that yeah. a country that has a christian majority uh po by population should have a government that embraces and promotes and um you know, is not separated from uh, Christian religious views. Yeah. And so now it's interesting that Hazoni is doing saying where a Christian majority exists because he comes from Israel, where what he's trying to say is in Israel, a Jewish majority exists, so we should have a Jewish state. And in America, a Christian majority exists, so we should have a Christian state, essentially. Um, and this has been one of the things that's been brought up. And I think that's the mainstream you, on the edges of nationalist conservatism, you get into sort of the, the overlap you get with the alt-right, where they start hitting the ethnic and, and racial angle of things. But with the more mainstream types, it's more about the sort of the religious culture. And it's, a, you know, now it's sort of a, a general Christian viewpoint, although if you follow them closely, and I, I, call, I watch them on Twitter, you'll see them start going hammer dogs between the Catholics and the Protestants, you know, because that's, that's the next stage, right, where, where you have... If you have the government getting involved in religion, the next stage is that the Catholics and Protestants are going to fight each other over which version of Christianity it is. Yeah. Now, this uh, reminds me of an essay you wrote um, about five years ago now. Dear conservatives, the Enlightenment is not the enemy. <laughs> Speak a little bit, Rob, about the, I guess, conservative broadly, but you, the, the current crop, the nationalists. What is their interpretation of the Enlightenment, or or call it misinterpretation? And um, what 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 are they so afraid of? 
Well, I think they're, so they, they look at it and they say, well, you know, enlightenment, the enlightenment um, advocated reason over faith. Because yep. that's one of the major streams of the enlightenment was, now it's, it's actually a little less simple than that because there was a version of Christianity in the enlightenment that was very influential in, in particularly in, in, in Britain and, and this, particularly in America, that was this sort of halfway house between 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 religious traditionalism and atheism, you know, it was it was a, a viewpoint that basically tried to make a very enlightenment approach, which it tried to make reason uh, compatible with religion. So yeah. this is you know when when Thomas Jefferson says uh, you know question with boldness even the existence of God, for if there be one, he must more approve the homage of reason than of blindfolded faith. So the idea is God wants us to be rational. He wants us to believe in him on rational grounds, not on, not on blind faith. That is a very much the, the, the religious view of the time that held sway in America. But so the backlash against that, the sort of anti-enlightenment backlash was that this was going to cause, this is you know, going to destroy Christianity. So we needed to have, we need to preserve room for faith, you know, that Immanuel Kant was sort of the, you know, philosophically the founder of this, where he said, he found it necessary to deny reason in order to make room for faith. So the big crisis of the late enlightenment was religion's on its way out if this happens. And therefore, you know, we have to somehow find a way to preserve, to preserve room for religion by denying the the uh, ability of reason to solve these problems. Now, the other aspect of this that that the nationalist conservatives and the religious conservatives have taken advantage of and have reacted to is that one of the failures that happened, especially in the 19th century, following on from the Enlightenment, is there were a bunch of secular, supposedly secular ideologies that sprung up, right? That were anti-Enlightenment. We were also anti-Enlightenment. They were equally anti-Enlightenment, like Marxism, where you know, it is very much against individualism, very much against individual rights, very much against, even against, you know, it, it dressed itself up as being scientific, but was also against the individual use of reason because you were supposed to, you know, reason was supposed to be dictated by your economic status. You know, they had this idea of, you, you, you know, you can't use bourgeois logic. You have to use pro proletarian logic. And so... You know your your economic your economic and pol political positions had to dictate what 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 how you even think in the first place, and that's something that's become very much you know is the the central idea of today's what we call wokeness is very much the idea that you know who you are and what you know what what your racial and ethnic and uh, uh, you know uh, what, what all these different intersectional categories you belong to that determines how you see the world and what you regard as truth. So the, the, the religious conservatives looked at that and say, well, look, this is where reason leads you. It leads you to this anarchy and chaos and subjectivism. And that's the, that's the result of the enlightenment. Now they're completely wrong because that was not the result of the enlightenment. That was a separate strain of anti-enlightenment thought that came out of the 19th century as the backlash against the enlightenment. Yeah. But it's, you know, but that gives them the excuse to say, therefore, the Enlightenment ruined everything. And, there, and we need to go back to a pre-Enlightenment, back to a religious, a religious foundation for everything. And, you know, it's, it's the strongest argument they have, because if you wanted to make the case that, look, we don't need religion, we can use reason to, to settle our differences and to come up with a, a basis for a free society. If you look at, you know, if, if you look at the actual results, 
we actually have mostly, you know, we've achieved that to a very great extent, a far, far greater extent than you might expect. Because, you know, we have, there's more free societies today than there have ever been. There's fewer wars right now than there have been through a lot of human history. So it's sort of on the ground level as how people live their individual lives, we've actually made good on a lot of that. But if you look at, you know, the intellectuals and especially the more utopian far left intellectuals, they made a mess of it. They, they screwed up the whole, you know, the, the whole idea of we can use reason and, and come up with secular ideologies that will, that will provide a, a basis for a society. They messed that up. They did not make good on that promise. Yeah, now you mentioned uh, Iram Hazani uh, earlier, his book, uh, The Virtue of Nationalism, 2018, mm -hmm. I think. Um, the, uh, more recently, Rich Lowry, The Case for Nationalism, which came a year later. So there's a proliferation of these, uh, of these themes. And I'm looking at from American Affairs, uh, Rob, I'm looking at what is conservatism? By Hazoni. And it's it's so interesting. Here's an excerpt. The bedrock of the Anglo-American political order is nationalism, religious tradition, the Bible as a source of political principles and wisdom, and the family, unquote. And interestingly, in this very long essay, he says, John Locke, and uh, you, you dated, I think, very correctly, the Enlightenment is roughly 1689, book 1789, when the French Revolution occurred, he's saying Locke was not the basis for American liberalism, liberal in a good sense. And, and, he, and he's citing um, people like John Selden and John Fortescue. And you look at the dates, and the dates are like 14th century, 16th <laughs> Names most people would not know, because I think you could argue that they weren't very influential. And here's the key. I find in the essay them saying... The key to their thinking was they denied the Lockean view that there were universal principles of reason available to all, and as well, universal rights. And, and, and so is that part of the tradition, is that part of the argument you're hearing now, that they're basically saying, do not be cosmopolitan, do not be internationalist, do not be one-worldist, because that, that assumes all humans, you know, have access to reason rights. Have you heard this argument? It's, it's been bizarre. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, well, the funny thing I find about the nationalist conservatives is that they have, especially the, the American nationalist conservatives have a basic problem, which is the founding of America, the, found, you know, the, the, the founding of America as it actually happens doesn't conform to what they want to argue for. So they have to sort of search around and try to find a different founding that fits better with their, with their, with their viewpoint. And so you're right, Hazoni finds all these guys from, you know, through two, 300 years earlier yeah. uh, before America, or I think, uh, uh, who's the guy, uh, Sora Bamari was talking about uh, going to the, uh, the Louisiana territory uh, at, you know, that was founded under the French. Yeah, uh, and finding things in there where you know basically it was founded under the French, under the under the Louis, under the kings, where you had this integralist state where the the state and, and the church were were wedded together, thrown an altar, uh, and he's looked to that as well. That's an alternative founding, and you know, we could we could go with that as our tradition. Uh, so here's where I think it's a good time to take a step back and talk about some of these other terms uh, that are ambiguous. Yeah, so good. conservative yeah. and liberal, right? So. 
And liberal is the one that I'm really, I'm focused on. I'm, I'm on possibly a quixotic attempt because this has been tried before. But I think the time's kind of ripe for it of, of, of reclaiming the word liberalism. Because I think that the biggest mistake the conservatives ever made was letting the left call themselves liberal. Right, so liberalism in its, its original meaning meant advocacy of freedom. That's you know, the word comes from the Greek root word for freedom. So it meant advocating a free society. So and, and political scientists still use it this way. And it's often used this way in international affairs. Where we're talking about uh, different kinds of social systems and, and you know, authoritarianism versus liberalism. And it doesn't mean whatever the left happens to want right now. It doesn't necessarily mean the welfare state. Liberalism in this context means a free society. It means you have you have individual rights. You have various. Um, uh, you usually have representative government. You have a system where you know the, this power of the state over the individual is limited in some way. Now you know the, it's used in a very academic ecumenical sense by the political scientists because it refers to you know your, a lot of European countries that have fairly big government in some respects but which have some basic limits and you know, they have a certain you know, freedom of speech and political freedom and representative government and various aspects that we would think of as a liberal society. Uh, so, you know, that's different from, you know, whatever the favorite, you know, liberalism is used in, in popular parlance, especially, you know, it's a confusing thing is only Americans use it this way. I actually tried to get a British author to argue, you know, um, I went to get a British author to write, and she's a little more sort of to the left on, on, on economics, but I wanted her to write in favor of liberalism in, in the other sense. She, and she, 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 I stumbled over it because in, in, you know, in the British context, liberal means pro-free market. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, the, in, in Australia, the liberal party is the pro-free yeah. market right-wing party. Right. Right? So you know, Americans yeah. have this weird thing. We're, all, we're the only ones for whom liberal and extreme liberal means basically a communist. And you know, they, if you go to the communists, the funny thing is, if you actually talk to a real live communist, who do they hate most? The liberals, right? Because they are the ones who want uh, freedom and individualism, and you know, they're not hardcore enough about about the power of the collective over the individual. Yeah, right? and the concept so, and the concept became so adulterated in America, I, I guess, roughly about starting about a hundred years ago, that it was necessary for people to start referring to classical liberal. You know, yeah. as opposed as opposed to contemporary liberal, and and but they're not forms of liberal. That the second version was illiberal, and and uh, I, so I, I like your attempt to reclaim it. Uh, similarly, similarly, the word progress or mm -hmm. progressive. Oh yeah, because you yeah. know how ter how terrible that the statists, that the socialists would grab the word uh, progressive as if they're for progress when they're actually for regress. But, yeah, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Stephen Pinker has a line about how nobody hates progress more than progressives. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so let let me ask you whether, uh, just to give the best possible, I don't know, sympathy to these worries, people who worry about people who basically just love America, mm -hmm. uh, love her traditions, worry that she's eroding, deteriorating, is, is the argument uh, close the borders except no one coming in because they won't assimilate anymore, right? They're not here to uh -huh. assimilate. They're not here to assimilate and, and embrace, but rather to pollute to, what is it called, uh, replacement theory. There's concern yeah, yeah. about that. Xenophobia, we hear them accused of that. What, what part of this, Rob, is um, what might we be sympathetic to because we too love America and right. her ideas, 
or or is it just really it, because it isn't really the same as the nationalism of the 30s with Hitler yeah Italy make that distinction if you will and, and so what are we talking about here in terms of distinctions yeah so I want to get to immigration in a second because I think it's okay, it's, it's, okay. It's, no it's really closely relevant to this but I'm going to start by talking yeah. about this another term conservatism what does conservatism mean yeah right so conservatism and, and um, American conservatism has always been a, again a, a weird version of conservatism compared to you know other countries because in the in the American, you know, if you're trying to preserve the American system and the American idea, American ideas and American traditions, well, our traditions are in a way radical. You know, our traditions are liberal yeah. in that in that broad political philosopher sense. Uh, so it's it's very weird that you know that to be a to be an American to be a, a true conservative in, in the sense of wanting to preserve the American idea and American systems and what's uniquely American. You also have to be a classical liberal. So, you know, that's a sense in which like somebody like George Will is a, you know, and the, the people who I think, you know, that's why I think you know, I, I came out, I, I know you did, out of the Reagan era, where that was yeah. sort of the paradigm uh, for a lot of conservatives is the idea that, well, we're trying to, you know, reclaim the yeah. um, the the legacy of the uh, of the founding fathers. We're trying to reclaim this this legacy of liberalism a country defined by and based on individual rights yeah and they were also you know relatively pro-enlightenment and i know that you know around this time in the 60s and 70s there's a um i think bernard balin came out with a book called yeah. the ideological origins of the american revolution yeah it was yeah. very influential and it, it was. was basically him going back and finding all the old pamphlets and all the old writings and not just Locke, but all the pamphleteers and people who were um, active in America at the time and finding out what their ideas were. And it's basically, it's all these enlightenment ideas and enlightenment ideas about reason and about the individual, uh, individual rights and, uh, free, you know, the freedom of the individual and, you know, these, and these Jeffers sort of Jeffersonian ideas and that, that, so if you were an American conservative, the odd thing is you are a traditionalist in favor of something that was a break from previous tradition <laughs> in, 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 in certain important yeah. respects. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, though, that a conservative overseas has generally been, you know, a, a European conservative. Uh, you know, you get these weird things, too. I remember uh, shortly after the fall of the, of the Berlin Wall, it's the early 90s, somebody referring to the hard conservative hardliners in, in Russia who yeah. were communists. Right? Yeah. Because right. you know, what they were trying to conserve was the Soviet right. Union. So right. It's all very relative. But in, in, in a European context, conservative has generally meant I'm in favor of some form of monarchy or I'm in favor of, you know, ethnic uh, uniformity. I'm in favor of whatever the traditional rules of society and identity of society was often religious. And this is at a time where, you know, especially in the 19th and 20th century, when uh, Europe was rapidly um, secularizing, yeah. right? That they, they were trying to say, no, let's preserve the religious traditions of this country. And there were all sorts of, you know, I think... Uh, there's some interesting things that happened. There were like schools, quote unquote, the school wars that went on yeah. in, 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 I think in Belgium or something like that, where, uh, where they had, you know, the Catholic schools had been the traditional place people were educated. And then you had these new public schools that came up that were secular and this war between, you know, should our kids go to secular schools or Catholic schools? And they came up with a compromise based on that. So that's the sort of, that's the sort of issue that is generally, and you think of like, you know, the, Jean, Jean-Marie or Marine Le Pen in France, um, 
now there are odd things though that happen. Like for example, I was I was an advocate of Brexit of of Britain coming out of the European Union, um, not on the sort of nationalist traditionalist grounds, but on the grounds that I thought people would be freer and have more control over their lives uh, without being part sort of subservient to the EU bureaucracy. So yeah, that, was my, yeah, that was my view as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, the European Union is this another one of these maddening things where I think it's actually the, the original idea behind it was terrific, which is it emerged out of the common market. This attempt to say, let's lower yeah. the trade, yeah. let's make it easier for people to trade and easier for people to, to work back and forth across these, these uh, borders. Yeah. And also, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a sense that, look, Europe has, you know, the Europeans basically had tried to twice during the 20th century and then. And they almost got around to it a third time. They had tried to kill each other en masse. Yeah. So the idea was, let's not do that ever again. So let's right. have uh, uh, this, this transnational union where we all work together peacefully and we keep ourselves from going back to war ever again. So yeah. I, I sympathize yeah. with that, but yeah. it became, you know, it was being done by a bunch of, you know, sort of left-wing status, big government, central regulating types. And so it also became highly bureaucratized and centralized and not very answerable to the to the to the voters in all these individual countries. And so I think that's sort of the problem with the EU is that it is it's a great idea, but implemented on sort of the wrong lines. Yeah. And the Brexit people, of course, had a mix of these two. And it was always hard to disentangle. Hey, I'm not with those guys. I'm with these guys, you and I on the liberalism side. Rob, I, I want to ask you, I want to dig deeper on conservatism because uh, yeah. this is so fascinating just from the standpoint of objectivism, uh, object, objectivism's theory of concepts and what they capture and what they convey and how words can be used or misused, package deals, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It, it's always interested me and I challenge students at Duke, I'll say to them, you know, when you say liberal, it has the word in it. It has the value, however we just find it. As someone who says I'm a liberal, they're telling you open or objectivist. I believe in objectivity. And then I say to them, so what are conservatives uh, conserving? And it's usually blank stares. Uh, and now if some of them say American values, American traditions, American principles, then, then I would say, well, why don't they come out for those principles? Why don't they name those principles and yeah. call themselves that? And here's, here's the, uh, speak to this, if you will. It's a kind of a paradox because conservatives are seen as intransigent, rock ribbed, fixed, unchanging, actually against change, against alteration, right? But if all they're doing is conserving whatever <laughs> their opponents have done over the last 20 years, they're actually a moving target, aren't they? That they actually embody whatever the other side is doing, but with a lag. Yeah. Have, and, and have, that's, you noticed, have you noticed this? It's very and odd. That, that is the longstanding criticism of, of conservatives is, is basically, you know, once something gets to be 30 to 50 years old, yeah, you're, it's you're, okay. if it's new, you're against it. Yeah. Once it could be 30 to 50 years old, you're in favor of it. Like, for right. example, look at, look at conservatives and social security, right? Yeah. Or the welfare state, you know, they will not, uh, they'll, they'll nibble around with reform of it at the edges. But if, you know, uh, the top conservatives right now are all like, no, we are never going to touch Social Security, even as the system's about yeah. to go bankrupt. Yeah. Um, so, no yeah, that, and that's that's so the problem is so the third sort of version of conservatism, I would name, which I think is actually the dominant one in practice, is conservatism really just is is not an ideology. It's an attitude. And the attitude is things were better when I was a kid. 
Mm. And then mm. this it's a well-known bias that people have, and people have studied this, they've measured it, that so what tends to happen when you remember the past is you tend to forget a lot of the bad stuff and you remember the good stuff. And so things that happened 30, 40, 50, you know, things that happened when you were a kid tend to look better than they really were. And often that's true too, because when we're kids, you know, we're not engaged with all the issues. Uh, we yeah. are often shielded from it by, you know, our parents, you know, they don't let us know all the bad stuff that's happening in the world. So we tend to think, oh, everybody, you know, the nation was much more unified. Everybody agreed with each other or, you know, people weren't so obsessed with politics or people didn't talk about sex as much. And it's like, well, no, they didn't talk about sex around you because you were five years old. Yeah. Uh, that's one of my, my, one of my pet peeves is that every baby boomer is convinced that nobody talked about sex before 1965. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. Because right. <laughs> that's, that's when they came, that's when they got old enough to, to find out about it. That's uh, that's really cool. The whole, uh, the whole. I just jotted this down. Nostalgia, the the whole kind of idea of nostalgia and uh, in a in a kind of biased way, misjudging. But but how about this, Rob? I mean, if you ask someone, say, in uh, I'm trying to pick a good time, say, before World War One, so 1913. If you asked an American uh, about the nostalgia, they would say. Oh my gosh! I'm so glad I'm living right now. It's so much better than you know the Conestoga wagons or whatever. Now we have trains. Now we have this. Now we have cities and stuff. Isn't this uh, the power of nostalgia, if you will, and therefore feeding into conservatism? Doesn't it heavily depend on whether the culture seems to be going up or down? I mean, if it's I, in a if it's in a truly improving condition, say the century before World War One. Um, people would not be nostalgic for a hundred years prior, but is it more plausible that they would say today, not because they're just getting older and you know, <laughs> cranky and get off my lawn and that kind, of, but that they actually do notice a decline? Well, I, I'm going to say a couple things about that, which is, um, I, you, I think you'd be surprised. Now, on the other hand, you know, the, the say like 1920, you know, if you were looking at things 1910, 1920, there was so much like vast visible progress in a way yep. that perhaps is more hit you over the head visible, you know, yep. transcontinental railroads and skyscrapers right. and all that. Yep. It, the progress was more like spectacularly visual. So maybe it, it hit more, but I really recommend there's a guy I've interviewed him a couple of times. Uh, Lou, Louis Anslow runs a, uh, a website called uh, the Pessimist Archive. Ah, cool. And what he does, he finds that there's no complaint people are making today about how the newfangled world is messing things up. There's none of those complaints that is new. They've all been made before about something that we consider totally innocuous, like the yeah. bicycle was going to destroy things. Um, <laughs> yeah, or the tel the telephone would end letter writing. And, and yeah, uh, or you know, the, if you think today, you know, what is the New York Times associated with? It's the famous New York Times crossword puzzle. Well, he yeah. went back and found an article in the New York Times talking about how crossword puzzles are ruining, ruining everything. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, it, this has always been a, a phenomenon about, you know, things were better in the past and these newfangled inventions are just ruining everything. And you can find that from, you know, and you literally can find that, they search old newspapers, you find that stuff going back every 20 years. Uh, I found a great one about how, um, was it today's men are a bunch of sissies and they're not real, real men, real right. tough, masculine right. men like, like they used to be in my age. And you yeah. can find one of those articles yeah. written in every single time throughout American yeah. history. It's, it's a 
So it is a certain, there is a certain amount of that. And, and also some of the nostalgia that happens right now. I mean, the thing that's astonishing to me is a lot of the people who are nationalist conservatives are more or less, you know, my age or, you know, give or take five or 10 years. And there's a bunch of them are talking about how much better things were in the 1970s. And I'm thinking, do you remember the 1970s? The 70s and 70s were terrible. If you were to pick one decade out of the last hundred years to be nostalgic about, that would be the last one I would pick, you know, because it was rising crime and the hippies and, uh, you know, tie dye and bell bottoms and the fashions were terrible. I mean, the, the economy was stagnant. There were gas lines. Uh, you, you had to stand, you have to wait in line to get gasoline because there were shortages, there was inflation, everything was terrible in the 70s. But, you know, and I learned this in, in Donald Trump because Donald Trump's not an ideological person. So he's not going to have a really ideological version of conservatism. But you get the sense him sometimes that, you know, basically things from roughly 1973 to 1978, which is sort of like the heyday of his youth. Right, that that he has this sort of hazy, nostalgic view that everything was better then, and if we could only go back to what things were like were then, then, then the country would be much better. And so people will have nostalgia for times that were objectively worse uh, in in a, in a lot of ways. Now let me ask you about this again. The category of um, the plausible, giving the the best possible read yeah. of what these people are worried about. And suppose someone were to say, you know, I'm really worried about losing my uh, freedom, my agency, my autonomy, my sovereignty, say, to the state within my nation. You know, maybe there's a centralization of power going on, that kind of thing, right? Well, if you blow this up into the global perspective, the argument would be, oh, and then I'm now really worried about losing America's sovereignty to uh, international agencies, so the UN mm-hmm. and the WHO and the WTO and a blah, 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 you know, the, and um, that's not going to work out well, not because I'm a provincial anti-cosmopolitan person, but because these foreign elements are not pro-American. They're asking for America to s- surrender her sovereignty in a way that I asked to surrender mine to Washington. Is that a plausible uh, feeder fuel for national nationalist conservatism? No, absolutely, one hundred percent. And I think that's the that's what gives nationalist conservatism oxygen because people are looking for an answer to that. I mean, what you just described, I agree with all of that. I don't want America being you know absorbed by some of these international organizations because they are mostly based on highly statist uh, premises. Uh, you know, like the a lot of these uh, environmentalist agree, you know, uh, initiatives are coming from you know, international agreements and international organizations that are trying to push them here. And a lot of them are anti-American or un-American in their outlook. Um, now, yeah. and so you know, I think that the thing is that the best argument for the right has always been the left. Because yeah. <laughs> the, left, the left manages to, they have an amazing ingenuity that no matter what happens, no matter what the right does, the left has always has this amazing ingenuity in coming up with something even more dreadfully unappealing. <laughs> you know, so like, you know, Bruce Jenner puts on a dress and you have to call him Caitlin and say he's a, he's a woman, you know, or that sort of thing. I mean, they come up with stuff that's just so insane that they are like, it's like they're deliberately trying to drive all normal, sane, rational people to the other side. 
And I think that the, the, the insulation we have to have against that, though, is that, well, you know, it's sort of like, you know, I don't want to I don't want to overblow this analogy because we're not in this situation today. And I, uh, But in, in the 1930s in Germany, you know, the biggest argument in favor of the Nazis was we're going to save you from the communists. Right. Yeah. Because, and it's the same right. sort of thing where you have two sides right. and they're saying, well, look, you know, we're not them. And that's our right, big argument right, for right, us. Right, and right. Uh, so just not being the left is, yeah. is you know, you shouldn't, you don't, you, you shouldn't embrace the nationalist conservatives just because they're not the left. You should look at, well, what is the real answer? And, you know, that's why I think this, this reclaiming the term liberal, liberalism is important. Because if you define things in terms of liberalism, then your, 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 your category won't be left versus right. It will be liberal versus illiberal. And you know, liberal in the proper yeah. sense of being yeah. pro freedom, right? Yeah, and, well, so, and so it gets you out of that left right mindset and saying, well, the real alternative is do we have a liberal system or do we have an illiberal system, either left illiberal or right illiberal? I love this. I love, I love your whole project of trying to reclaim liberalism. I'm trying to say, I am trying the same fight in academia. It is not very, it's not very easy. But by, by the way, you're right about the earlier paradox of if you're in a European country. And if I'm in a, a seminar, a, a, an academic seminar, and there are foreigners, I use liberal, and they immediately think capitalism and freedom. It, it is remarkable how America has uh, messed this up entirely. By the way, by the way, sometimes I will say something, you know, cosmopolitan and international, and the student will ask, uh, "Professor, are you for world government?" And I said, "Well, what kind of government it is?" I mean, when we got the United States of America, there were people. Existed saying, I don't, I don't want a federal level. I want the 13 states. And, yeah. and you mentioned the European Union earlier, the project of well, the United States of Europe. Uh, why not? The why not would be, this is not 1707. The why not is the United States of Europe are going to be socialist, are going to be socialist. They're not going to be Lockean American people. So that's what you're emphasizing with so much. It isn't so much the level of i guess i don't know the level of governance is that what we're talking about whether it's liberal or not and yeah it's, it's the question of what's the basic principle of government and you know yeah. so the thing the thing that i know really what here's what i really want to hammer home which is if you we talked about nationalism being defined as the nation is the unit of politics that you know the it's not about the individual it's not about the individual's freedom it's about how you should serve the nation yeah and it is collectivist yeah and that's the, the common premise is yeah. that right you have two versions of collectivism. And uh, now, you know, the most extreme version of this course was, I just mentioned, the Nazis versus the communists, where you had yeah. the idea that, you know, uh, Hitler says, uh, du bist nicht, dein Volk ist alles. You are nothing, your people is everything. Uh, and you have the, the communists then saying, well, yes, the, we agree, they totally agree, the individual should be totally subordinated to the proletariat, you know, to the good of the proletariat. Um, there's actually, somebody said, you know, tried to get me somebody I, it was an argument conversation conversation with someone and they're trying to come up with an example of a self-contradictory term and they said well a communist nazi that would be a self-contradictory term yeah and i said no actually that was a well-known phenomenon in the 1930s they were actually called um the term used to them as they were beefsteak nazis because yeah. they had the term beefsteak nazi this is the term in, in, the original term was in german it was used by the Nazis to describe communists who came over because the idea is they were red on the inside and brown on the outside. Oh, <laughs> brown is you know wearing the brown shirts, so they were wearing brown shirts, but they were red on the inside, so they were beefsteak Nazis. And so you know, people went back and forth between the two quite quite frequently at the time. 
Yeah, and and the Nazis is a contraction, of course, for national yeah. socialism. So so when the when the Soviets come along and say, well, we're against that because we're international socialists. So so they're both socialists, and the and the dispute is about whether you're national or international. It's not really a fundamental dispute, is it? But what's it? What's well, so, What's so interesting about the, the further the further irony is the Soviets the Soviets ended up basically per, uh, enforcing Russian nationalism or, or Russian imperialism. Yeah. So yeah. they were nationalists too. Yeah, and 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 of course they could pose as well. We're the ones who believes in universal human. I'm not even going to say rights, but liberation. Or, you know, yeah. it it was workers of the world unite, not <laughs> not workers of Munich. You know, and and so interesting because Hitler here is a nationalist, right? But he ends up invading a bunch of other countries, violating <laughs> a quote international order. But on the grounds that I, I have found Aryans in other countries, so the so what you mentioned earlier, the ethnic tie, you know, the idea that nationalism is well, where are all our ethnic people? Borders be damned. Now borders be damned. Same thing with Ukraine, right? They'll say, well, Crimea is like Russian. We get to invade. Yeah, borders be. Um, uh, that's part of this. That's part of the 1930s nationalism, at least. But the today's nationalism of the Trump variety, it, it, isn't it America first? We're not going to engage in foreign wars. We're not going to be adventurous. That, that is a bit, di- not a bit, that's a lot different than the Hitler type adventurism, right? Oh, yeah, it is. Um, I, I, unfortunately, I think uh, a lot of my view of this is that a lot of the Isolationism, uh, I don't want to use that term of it, you know, the, the anti-interventionism of yeah. the American yeah. right, it, it's similar to the anti-interventionism of the, of the left in the 20th century, which is they don't want to intervene because they're sympathetic to the other, to, to the people who we would intervene against, right? So yeah. there's a lot of, um, you know, back then it was, you know, we don't want the America going off to Vietnam, yeah. not because we're against America, you know, uh, uh, being going outside its borders, but because we like the, the North Vietnamese oh, government, yeah. we, we want yeah, the communists yeah. to win. Hanoi, Hanoi Jane, yeah, we want the Viet Cong to win, yeah. So there are a lot of nationalists who are very, yeah. you know, yeah. I think particularly with regard to the current war, they're very sympathetic to Russia because they see it as, I, there's one particular version that was a rather extreme version I come across recently, mm. a guy who did a you know, self-described reactionary mm. um, who, who wrote about how, well, we have to support, you know, Russia is a model, you know, and he hedged his bets a bit. He said Russia is a model yeah. because what happened, and that's the big thing he cites is that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, polls showed that Russians went from being like 30% Orthodox Christian to being 80% Orthodox Christian. Mm. And that shows this is that, you know, it's been a religious revival, and that's why we have to support them because they have revived their traditional Christian views, yeah. uh, you know, and that they're a vehicle for that. And so that's that sort of thing I deal with. If the goal is to revive traditional religion, revive um, uh, you know a traditional morality, then they look at Russia. Now I think very in rose color. You know, it, it, Russia has always you know in, in the 20th century, Russia was the place where leftists looked with rose colored glasses and yeah, saw yeah. what they wanted to see. And and a lot of people on the right are looking now and looking to Russia. And not all of them, but it's it's mostly goes the other way. But um, some people on the right are looking to Russia and seeing it with rose-colored glasses as this is a model for reviving religion in in, in the culture. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, Rob, uh, nationalism. I think this is a very profound point on your part that nationalists of whatever stripe see not the individual, 
but the nation as the unit of value or the unit of account, so to speak, that should be focused on. And it, 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 it strikes me as like an intermediate position between, well, it, shall it be the international realm or should should it be the individual or the family? No, we got something in between, roughly in between nationalism. But I ask you this, have you noticed that the nationalists, the ones I read, they will continually and repeatedly denounce what they call hyper-individualism. Yes. And to an object to an objectivist ear, uh, you know, we love individualism. We know that the traitor principle tells us this does not mean atomism. It does not mean being a uh, uh, a hermit, you know, or antisocial. But uh, the the emphasis they place on the family as the it's not just the nation, but the family unit, part of religion, part of it. You, do you think that's feeding? their love of nation it's like coming out of what i'm used to call families mini collectives it, it they they resist the individual the family is a collective is that part of a continuum they're on to yeah you broke up a little bit there but i think i know where you're going with this so yeah there's been a long-standing odd argument from conservatives that they say well socialism doesn't work anywhere except in the family ah. and the family yeah. is their example of socialism and that yeah. you know I don't know. My family doesn't work that way. I, I don't have the I don't have the authority of a of a of a, I, I wish I had the authority. Sometimes wish I had the authority of an authoritarian ruler, and I don't. Uh, <clears throat> I've got a couple of very independent teenagers right now, uh, and, and they're not rebellious in the way other teenagers are. They're mostly like like they in delight in finding any any error I make in grammar or in history or something like that, and then correcting it very loudly yeah. <laughs> and reminding me that I got it wrong. Yeah. Uh, but the, the point is that uh, they've had this idea, you know, the family is basically the unit of collectivism. And it's, and, yeah, right. but I think it's also that they see the family as the way that religious values are inculcated. And I, so I think the biggest, it, it goes back to this issue. And I want to tie into immigration here because, um, and I think we probably should take questions, you know, go to the audience in a minute. Yeah, yeah well, but yeah. Uh, I want to tie in immigration. That's the big loose thread we have. And I want to tie it into this issue with the family. Yeah. Because conservatives tend to have the idea that that they, they tend to have this idea that values are not spread through ideological means. They're not spread through education. They're not spread through uh, persuasion. They're not yeah. spread through people adopting ideas. They're yeah. spread by being inculcated in you when you were five. And this is I call it the Sunday school model for uh for, for spreading culture right is it which is and by the way the left has totally adopted the sunday school model because that's why they like to control the schools right yeah. because it is if, if we drum this in your head uh and until you're seven years old allegedly you will you will therefore be you know the rest of your life you'll be under its sway and you'll never be able to disagree with it now yeah. there's a lot of evidence this isn't true uh, is how we got here, by the way, in this secular age, is a bunch of people raised religious who re rebelled against it or, or left it or drifted away in some way. But that's sort of their idea is that if, if we just have people properly enculturated and going to Sunday school every, every, every Sunday uh, up to the age of seven, then we can pass our values on. And I think that's part of the reason they're so afraid of immigrants. Mm. Now, I want to say some of, I know, I know some of these people I think you know as well, some of the most American people I know are immigrants. Uh, they're yeah. people, and it's because they're people who, you know, they left their homes, they, they uh, left their societies they came from. They came to America in search of opportunity, in search of the ability to, to make your own decisions, to have greater freedom, 
to to make something of yourself to you know to to pursue the American dream, and so they have adopted America Americanism. Uh, there's a, a guy my wife's worked with who's Mexican. He's a Mexican immigrant. He's an American citizen now. Uh, she did a little work for him, and he paid her. And she noticed that his checks have the American flag flowing across them, you know, and and he's obviously very proud of this. You know, there's all sorts of people who have come here from other countries who have adopted our values. Meanwhile, if you go to like a Bernie Sanders, if you want to talk about socialists, you go to see a bunch of communists in Brooklyn or go to a Bernie Sanders rally, and you're likely to see a bunch of old white American, you know, old old white European and. Uh, Americans whose, whose families have been here for generations and generations. So, you know, because ideologically they went off to college and they got, you know, pumped full of, of left-wing ideas and, uh, <clears throat> and, and, and were converted to those. So the idea that somehow it's immigrants who are wrecking things, you know, I, I found really little evidence that it's immigrants who are wrecking things. Uh, it's, 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 you know, we've done it to ourselves. We, we, all the problems we have are our own damn fault. It's not the immigrants. But to understand that, you have to be able to, you have to be, have the confidence to say, this is an intellectual battle. It's an ideological battle, and we have better arguments, and therefore we should, we should be winning. We can go out and win the arguments. But if yeah, you're a Sunday school model, which is the only way we can win is if you, you know, if, if we take our kids to Sunday, if, if you shield people from all outside influences and, and uh, give them only these ideas and these values, then you, you're, you're going to lose that battle eventually. I like that distinction, Rob, and I, it reminds me also of the discussion we had earlier about nostalgia on immigration. Now, it, it, it feels, I think, to the nationalists, if they're coming into Ellis Island, now we're talking about a different time, right? Nineteen hundred, yeah. because they're coming to the land of opportunity and freedom, not the welfare state. There isn't any welfare state in 1910. There's no central bank. There's no income tax. And people worry today that it's a magnet for parasites. It's a magnet for those who want to get on the welfare state. I, I think I agree with you largely. These are still people who want freedom and opportunity. But I can see why people might say the immigrant coming to America circa 2020, 2023 is not the same as the one because it's not the same America. So we're going to. I, I think, though, that I mean, there's some good. Uh, I've, I've talked a lot to Alex Narasta, who's. Uh, I think yeah. it was a Cato who's a, a, a you know works this issue of, of immigration. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence that, you know, the people who come here are very entrepreneurial. They start businesses, they're entrepreneurial. Yeah. Oh yeah. They, they don't they're they don't they don't they're not criminals at a higher rate. And yeah. it, it, depending on how you look at the data, they actually are criminals right. at a lower rate. Uh, they're not on welfare at a higher rate. So there's a lot of evidence that that's actually not true, that it's the yeah. same, you know. And, you know, by the way, you know, I'm very, I've looked into occasionally, you know, how people got hysterical about the Irish and the Polish, you know, my forebears coming over. Yeah, yeah. And one of the big arguments like 100, 120 years ago is, and you find old political cartoons on this, is that all these Eastern Europeans are socialists and they're all coming here and they're bringing socialism. Or if you remember the Sacco and Vanzetti trial, yeah, right. you know, these Italians who, Italian anarchists who had come over and this was supposed to represent all these Italian immigrants. And of course, now you have... You know, the, the, somebody said America is great at, at at assimilating people and turning them into nativists. Right. <laughs> you know that the grandparent, the grandparent, the grandchildren of the uh, of the the people who were dangerous radicals coming from overseas, their grandchildren are all the ones who say, "All oh, those immigrants weren't like the ones that we had." They're, they they yeah. right. <laughs> right. I remember facing the same discrimination when I emigrated from Massachusetts to <laughs> North Carolina. 
when the North Carolinians heard that I, you know this, right? When the North Carolinians heard that I was a Massachusetts professor, they were convinced that I was coming to North Carolina to turn it into Massachusetts. And I said to them, "No, no, I'm fleeing Massachusetts because you guys are freer. I'm not going to change. I'm not going to change this place. That seems to me the difference. It's interesting. I I, I teach uh, that's the the definition of the state." so interesting on immigration especially in borders because weber max weber the famous sociologist has the famous definition which ayn rand endorsed basically so yeah. I'm, I'm citing i'm citing his definition which you'll it'll sound familiar because it's rand's as well quote the state an institution with a monopoly over the legitimate use of force in a particular territory unquote so clearly it's the suggestion of borders Right, Rob? But I think what you're saying yeah. is you, you can have definitive borders and still have a policy of letting most people in, you know, so long as they're not diseased or dangerous or terrorists. And so it's not open versus closed borders. It's something like managed borders yeah. on some principle. Well, also, you know, the open borders argument uh, kind of makes it's it's like the people who have arguments about whether you can have any, you should have any taxation at all. I'm like, well, when we get to the point where we're arguing about that, yeah, you know, we're already. We, yeah. I, I'll retire yeah. because I don't care anymore. You know, if we right. get tax, if we just get taxes below ten percent of <laughs> uh, of the economy, you know, I'd be happy and I, I can go retire and 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 go write books on history or go fishing or whatever, uh, because you know the job will have been done. And again, you know, the issue is I you know the the current issue is not open borders. The current issue is do we have a highly restrictive? I mean, historically by American standards a relatively restrictive system of immigration right now where very few people can can legally immigrate. And that's why we have large so much illegal immigration is because we've yeah. made it so hard. And it, you know, yeah. it, it's hard for the guys who are coming here to be framers and, and bricklayers. Yeah. It's even hard for them. I mean, there's, the real insanity is you have the tremendously um, talented people coming here yeah. who are scientists yeah. and I know yeah. a sculptor who went through the immigration process and how all the hoops she had to go through that, yeah. you know, we're keeping out the very, you know, the people who are clearly the best of the best and highly talented, yeah. we're keeping them out. Yeah, I think we also have to remember that they're fleeing places that are very statist, that are very redistributionist. It's a lot of work and a lot of risk to go to another country, leave your family, whatever. So whether it's two, whether it's 1910 or 2010, these people are coming by looking at the differential. It's rather the differential, right? And the, yeah. yes, America, yes, America has changed, but whoever's coming to America is typically coming because they expect a better life, meaning they're less likely, to, they're not likely to be a parasite. Those borders need to be managed. They, they shouldn't be so inhumane. All right, you want to take questions from other than me? Um, Clark. Yeah. Clark yeah. is first, right? Thanks for all that, Rob. Go ahead, Clark. Yes, thank you so much, guys, for doing this. I'm really enjoying this. You guys should do this more often. Oh, where you bounce yeah. ideas well, off of each oh, other. Rob is great. But, Rob uh, is great. Go. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, though. I, I don't mean to like I'm to sound like I'm giving the nationalist conservatives, uh, national conservatives, a pass. But how much of this do you think is just a reflection to all the anti-Americanism? You know, yeah. anti. Uh, 1619 project, you know, biological yeah. males competing yeah. in women's sports, you know, the whole nine, you know, drag, drag queen story hour. So these 
these national conservatives, like everyone else today in America, they don't really believe fundamental ideas are important. So they think that in order to counter all that, the antidote is God and God. In other words, more altruism, just God and country and wave the American flag. That's the antidote to all this, you know, all this postmodernism and critical theory that, that we see that's just so prevalent even here down here in texas it's it's extremely pre well especially here in austin texas so yeah. so I, I don't mean to give the the nationalist conservative the national conservatives a, a pass but but you know since they don't believe in fundamental ideas they think this is the antidote well yeah i i actually i mean 100 percent agree that somebody needs to punch the hippies i mean <laughs> hippie punching is the term that's often used for this in politics that you know, the, 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 the left is so obnoxious that somebody actually wants you to come out. I think this came out of the, oddly out of John McCain's campaign in, in, in uh, 2008, where he said something about punch the hippies. Yeah, that, that the, the left can be so obnoxious that people want somebody who's gonna punch the hippies. And I, I, I kind of, I, I sympathize with that too, they're infuriating. But part of it too, I think, you know, like I said earlier, Richard and I, you know, we, we're more from the Reagan era so we remember the time when you had, you know, the original hippies, uh, uh, the original wave of hippies, and you had everything go to the left and everything became crazy. And it was, I think, yeah. even more anti-American than it is today Agreed. in terms of, you know, the, the whole Vietnam, you know, ho, was it uh, Ho 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 Chi Minh, Ho Chi Minh is going to win, is it was a chant used by anti-war rallies in the 60s yeah. and 70s. Yeah. You know, but they were basically in favor of America's enemy in the war very openly. Um, so at the time, though, what we had as the response to that, as the backlash against that, was Ronald Reagan, who was basically a classical liberal. Now, not a very not super consistent. Uh, you know, he was a politician. <laughs> so, but but by the standards of the age, you know, I, you know, Richard and I are on the same side of thinking that that uh, Reagan didn't get enough credit. But um, yeah. yeah, you know, he had he had his faults. But by the standard of his era, he was way far yeah. out pro classical liberal compared right. to. Yeah, Thatcher, think, uh, Thatcher as well. Yeah, so if you want a backlash against the left, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, this gender stuff is totally, especially is, is, I mean, this gender stuff is particularly, I think, particularly annoys people because it's one of those things where they like, they really work hard to try to get you to to say something that you, that is obviously not true. So there's like a, it's an epistemological insult that's in, in, in a lot of the gender stuff that, that you know, when they say Bruce Jenner is a woman, they're like, they're trying to get you something that you can see with your own two eyes is very obviously not true, but they're going to say, you have to affirm this. You have to say this or else you know, will destroy your life. Um, their power to do that is actually over greatly overestimated, but you know, they do get people to fold on that. So, um, yeah, I think that creates the sense that we need a backlash, but the question is a backlash in favor of what? You know, what are you going to go to as the answer to that? And we've had much better answers to it in, in, in past iterations of, 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 the, of the political rights. Yeah, and, and Rob and I have a great colleague, Stephen Hicks, who's written a book on postmodernism. And postmodernism, I, I think, uh, Clark, to the extent you're referring to, hey, these people are reacting against crazy, arbitrary relativism. Anything goes... Black is white, up is down, wet is red, and it's almost, as Rob said, it's almost like they're punking you. It's almost like an Ashton Kutcher show, you know, punked. Uh, we're going to say this right to your face now. What kind of humiliation are you going to accept now? And, and the alternative to relativism would be some kind of fixity, absolutism, either or, black and white. And interestingly, objectivism has that. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not dogmatic, but it's certainly not relativist, right? It's certainly not subjectivist. And what I think Rob and I are so frustrated about is we understand this yearning for rejecting relativism and postmodernism in favor of some kind of fixity, but they go right to religion because religion does give them fixity and dogma and here's the rule and commandments. It's the way it is. And it's so sad because there is an alternative to relativism, which does not, you know, require dogmatism and does not require a skepticism. So interestingly, because the postmodern, if modernity, you know, Rob, modernity to them means the enlightenment. Yeah. So, so the postmoderns want to go get rid of the Enlightenment, obviously, right? But the religionists are basically pre-modern. The, their view is go medieval. <laughs> well, and like, also, we're, we're the only ones left saying, uh, can we please be modern? And, if you, and, and, if, and, and if you go to some of the nationalist intellectuals of today, they are actually yeah. kind of postmodern in the sense that yeah. their view is itself um, relativist in the sense that they say there is no universal principle. Because that yeah. would be nationalist. If there's a universal right. principle applies to everybody, that's internationalist. Right. They basically right. have it's the kind of the Hegelian approach. Yes. Where, yes. Where it's relative to your nation. So they're right. trying to say it, it's if, if you're an American, you have a certain culture that's appropriate to you. If you're not, if you're uh, Israeli, you have a certain culture that's appropriate to you. If you're Russian, you have a certain culture that's appropriate. To, it's, yes. It's every, yes. Every nation has its own, and they tie in a lot to sort of the anti-colonial left. I which know. Says, Oh, we don't want to be, you know, colonized intellectually <laughs> by, by Western <laughs> concepts. Right. Okay, Monica, you're next. Hi. So I guess I I want us to be careful about not framing um, conservative values as medieval. Like what? What's what's medieval about the nuclear family and wanting fathers to be present in their children's lives and giving parental rights back to parents so schools don't teach gender ideology and little Tommy comes home from school saying, I'm Susie now, mom, and you've got to not misgender. Like, like I'm confused. Uh, yeah. yeah. Go, go ahead, Rob. I feel, so I, guilty. I, talk I, feel, I feel, I feel guilty now for not having defended the family because she's right. Oh yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I like to say I'm, I'm, I'm an atheist who's, who's strongly committed to family values. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. But, but, um, in the sense, so yeah, this is, I think goes to exactly what we were talking about earlier that, you know, the people see that these things are happening that are bad and they want an answer to it. So what I say is what's, so, there's nothing medieval about the family per se, and there's certainly nothing medieval mm. about um, parental rights, or I would say parental freedom. Mm. Uh, I'm a big advocate. My answer to this is school choice is really the answer to this that we should be having. And it's actually picked up. It was this crazy libertarian idea, you know, 50 years ago, and it's actually picked up and been implemented a lot of places, some school choice programs. So if you don't like mm. what's going on in the public schools, you have a voucher or you have some sort of tax credit or something you can use to go find a school that will reflect your values. Um, now, by the way, a lot of people are going to use that to send their kids to highly leftist the schools that are way left, more leftist than the public schools. But still, you know, they have that choice and you can though go the opposite direction. But the medieval part, so this tends, you know, there's different, there's, there's different versions of conservatism that's going on here. And the medieval part is you have some of these people are literally arguing against separation of church and state. They're arguing for a unity of church and state. And some of them are specifically looking for like a Catholic uh, the Catholic Church is going to basically be uh, the, the official state religion. 
And that's the part that's medieval in, the, in a very literal sense of, you know, the, the Middle Ages was the last time, basically prior to 1500, was the last time that you had, you know, one religious viewpoint that had a monopoly that um, uh, that was enforced by uh, by the government of every, you know, pretty much every country in Europe. So that's the that's the thing that's medieval about it is this idea that and and also the sense that that rights are about are, are traditionalist that that what rights you have are given to you by tradition rather than by your the nature of man and that's actually a fascinating issue i don't only just indicate it now um it's something you, you richard you know brad thompson he yeah. wrote a great book called america's revolutionary mind where he basically yeah. takes apart the declaration of independence yeah. and goes into the intellectual history of every little part of it. And a fascinating little section of that is he talks about how at the beginning, when the Stamp Act crisis, all the stuff that leading up to the revolution, the Americans start talking about the rights of Englishmen. And they're appealing to traditions that go back to the Magna Carta, go back to the Anglo-Saxons. They're, they, so the, the rights that you have are given to you by various traditions that have been negotiated among social groups over time. And over the period of this crisis, as they start to become more and more engaged in this issue, there's a shift that goes on where they stop talking about the rights of Englishmen and they start talking about the rights of man. And that's because yeah. they're becoming more philosophical and saying, wait a minute, these are universal principles. It's not just yeah. a, an English tradition that we're going to appeal to. It's we're, yeah. we're appealing yeah. to, this, yeah, to, the, to, the, to the philosophical ideas and the principles. And so that's the other part about it that, you know, coming out of the Middle Ages into the Enlightenment, there was very much yeah. this idea that your rights shouldn't depend on whatever the traditional arrangement of your society they are. They should transcend that. They should be enforced against, you know, we should get rid of some of the traditions. Uh, not necessarily all of them, but some of the traditions if they are, you know, contrary to your rights. And so that's the other part that I think is the difference. Yeah, I, I, that, I, Monica, your point about the nuclear family is so important. I, I uh, over the time, I think I've changed my view on this, but I was raised Catholic, Massachusetts, big family. And the parents stayed together. They never got divorced. Now, am I a Catholic? No, but Catholicism is a, for, a crude form of philosophy. And then the family, I, I think you notice, especially if it's big family, how do they govern this place? How do they, you learn governance, you learn hierarchy, you learn, and then if it's a family that's good, it's preparing you to leave the nest, not stay there, not stay in your mother's basement. They're there to create an independent being who can go off on their own. And if they differ with the parents. So if that kind of thing is what their family is, that's wonderful. I think that is a wonderful kind of institutional pillar for the free society and to the extent that's been eroded or to the extent the state has substituted itself, you know, the, the political paternalism we have today where state is parent, citizen is child. Yeah. They, they infantilize, they literally overtly infantilize citizens in public schools so that they're craving uh, the social safety net and the nanny state is, is awful. It's, it's totally terrible. Okay. Our founder, David Kelly, David, do you want to chime in the founder of the Atlas Society. Yeah, uh, thank, thanks to both you, you Richard, and, and Rob um, for a, a very illuminating session. Uh, there's a lot I could say, but I want to just make one point, um, I think partly in answer to, to Monica, uh, and that is that um, there is a, um, a theme in, uh, let me, if I can say this without, you know, it sounds like a funny phrase, Conserva uh, traditional conservatism, going back to Edmund Burke, 
that, uh, in fact, this is explicitly Burke's view in the, um, he was, Burke was a late 17th century, late 18th century writer uh, whose famous book was um, uh, about the French Revolution. And he, uh, anyway, he's, the point that's relevant to Monica's uh, question about the family, it, traditional conservatives said, said that human reason is weak and human passions are strong and unruly and need control. That's why we need ethics. That's why we need virtues. Of course, the, eth the ethics here are, are Christian and involve a lot of sacrifice and uh, giving up of things. But how do, we, how do we become good people? How do we acquire virtues? Well, we can't do it on our own. We need incentives to strengthen our, the weakness of our reason and disincentives to follow our, our passions. And that can, that the family is where that starts. The whole society is involved ultimately, but that's the society is where it starts. So the, in that view, the, the, family, the, the role of family is mainly to um, inculcate morality by parental, um, you know, encouragement and um, the punishment to get us on the right track. We can't do it on our uh, individually on our own. And I think that's that's long been a part of conservatism. It's not anything. So in in rejecting that view, as I think Robin and, and uh, Richard both do, objectivism in general does, uh, is it says nothing about the family per se, you know, I agree it's a great institution, but um, it's the, the particular conservative view of that role of the family as the first point where we become socialized, civilized. Hmm. Well, you know, I, I have an observed observation to make about this based on my own kids. Uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of Montessori education. I think a lot of object, there's a huge number of objectivists who have started Montessori schools and are Montessori teachers. So it's kind of a thing. Um, but I'm a big fan of Maria Montessori's approach to education. And the thing is that the whole essence of the Montessori approach, and my kids have both gone through it and, and it's been terrific for them. The whole essence of the Montessori approach is you're developing the independence of the child. Yeah. You're depending right. their ability to regulate themselves, to direct yeah. themselves. Yeah. And it's very much not in the spirit of because I said so, you know, do this because I said so, or follow orders. A lot of uh, education in the public schools, you know, they're secular public schools, they're run by the state, but they're run along this old sort of old fashioned model of the purpose of the school is to teach you how to follow orders and how to go from one, how to go from uh, one place to another when the bell rings and how to, how to repeat the, 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 the catchphrases and the, the things that we put into your head. And it's sort of like a factory model where it's like an assembly line where, where think, knowledge is being installed in your head, as opposed to a place where you go and learn how to how to think for yourself and be independent. And that's the, I think, the thing I love about the Montessori method. Uh, by the way, and, and I've noticed this during the pandemic, that when the schools were shut down, a lot of the public school kids floundered and they just they could not handle remote education. And I saw a lot of the Montessori kids sort of dealt with it in stride because they were already used to being in charge of and directing their own education, right? They're already used to taking initiative. 
Now, our school also, because it wasn't a public school, was not closed down for very long. <laughs> they, did, they, they, they turned the design and, and, and um, adjusted to it uh, more quickly. But the point is that, you know, for the time that they were not in school, they did better because they had that self-directed quality. And that's sort of the issue of parenthood, which is, I love Richard Manning's point that I'm going to think about more, which is, you know, the parent in the family is like the ultimate paradigm of the independent person, the independent adult who can make his own decisions, right? So it's, you know, it's not that the state is the parent and we're all the children. Part of the point of the family is you will reach 18, you will reach adulthood. And at that point, you will be independent. You're going to be able to make your own decisions and start your own family and be the one who's in charge. So the whole point of Montessori education, the whole point of parenthood is you're raising someone to get to the point where not where he will simply, you know, follow whatever rules you put in his head for the rest of his life, but that where he'll be able to think for himself and make his own decisions and be an independent adult. Yeah, my father, my father's favorite expression for the time I was, I don't know, 13 or so, is he said, checkout time is 18. I said, yeah. what, what do you mean? Is this a hotel? He said, absolutely. This is not your home. It's my home. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm preparing you. You prepare yourself. You're leaving at 18. And I certainly did. Steve, you have a question for Rob? Yeah, Rob. Um, you know, you was addressing uh, the idea of immigration. Uh, it's my understanding that the United States takes in more immigrants than any country in the face of the earth right now, coupled with the fact that we see total chaos and just absolute uh, uncontrolled crossings at our southern border. We have no mechanism to screen. We have no mechanism to say who's coming here or what's going on. Uh, <clears throat> and and coupled with the fact, you know, some people in this country have more invested. My people come to this country in the late 1600s on both sides. And they, they put blood, sweat, and tears. One of my grandfathers served with George Washington in the Revolutionary War. Some people have more invested in this experiment, and they they don't see anything wrong with all the, the generations that have put blood, sweat, and tears into the building of this country to have some kind of mechanism to make sure that it's not arbitrarily wrecked. And um, I just don't see anything wrong with that. Rob? Okay, so let me deal a couple things with that. Uh, one is... Uh, you know, the fact that your parents came, your your ancestors came back here in the 1600s, they put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this, but so did a lot of the immigrants who've come along. I mean, so did the, you know, my grandparents and, and great-grandparents who came here. Uh, uh, so did so a bunch of the people who have come here more recently. They've, they've worked very hard. Oftentimes they've disrupted themselves. They've been um, uh, refugees or, or, you know, coming from war-torn places. They've lost everything and they've come here. And what they have when they get here is something they built up by their own by their own work. You know, they're not coming here and taking something from you. They're adding something of their own. Um, what was it uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote about the uh, when he was writing this? So he was writing this against King George because he said, you know, look, it wasn't the government that brought us. It wasn't the British government that brought us Americans and and, and made America work. He says, you know, America was was founded and firmly established by the effort of the people who came here. And he says, what's well, for themselves, they fought for themselves, they won. And for themselves alone, they have a right to hold. That was the, the line that he uses. It's great. One of these great lines. It's in uh, 
a summary view of British America of the rights of British America, uh, which he wrote before the Declaration of Independence. And anyway, so the point is, that he said, you know, it wasn't the collective that did this; it was the individuals that did this. And I think we should offer the same deal to anyone who comes now. You come here and you work, you start a business, you know, you you um, bring your talent here and create something, and you too can add to this greatness of America. I think we're the myopic part is that there's this huge amount of talent. Here's a great an example: five um, G. So people go plenty. Well, how how is the Chinese are are, are building a lot of this equipment that's going to use for five G, the sort of newest, greatest, best, fastest uh, telecommunications? Well, one of the patents, one of the crucial patents being used for that is from a, a Turkish scientist who studied in the U.S. came up with this important idea, mathematical idea, as a graduate student, couldn't get a visa, so he went back. He was sent back to Turkey. And then ends up selling his patents to the Chinese because, you know, what, what choice? We kicked him out. We didn't let him stay here. You know, he would have been working for an American company that would have had the patent if he'd stayed here. So, again, we, we are we're by saying, oh, well, you know, what my parents did 300 years ago, we're ignoring what some new person coming here could do now that would make this country better and more prosperous. So I think it's, but, it's a, but, a, a but, let me ask oh, you this question, Steve, uh, Steve, Steve, we're going to have to cut it off there because we only have two more minutes, but that was a great, really great question. And I, I just want to close with um, alerting people to, uh, first of all, as we said at the outset, make sure you subscribe to the Trzinski letter. It's just fabulous. And Rob's other work at Symposium, which I think is on Substack, right, Rob? Uh, also on Substack. And Discourse magazine, but to get all these things, if you can't remember, just go to the atlassociety.org and look for about and scholars and, and fellows and you'll see him there. And then also, if you're, if you can do this, man, you really should go to this. We are, as uh, Rob and I and, and David Kelly and others, Gold's Gold Summit, the Atlas Society is having at Nashville, Tennessee, July 27 to 29. If you know students, uh, they can be actually up until I think age 27 or so, so they can be more than students can go and, or if you're a potential donor, you can go. But um, f check that out, go to our website and check that out because uh, Rob will be speaking at that. David will be speaking on Get Real, Objectivity and Objectivism. That's uh, that's one of the talks. And then, and Rob will be speaking, uh, what's your topic, Rob? I'm looking, the virtue of selfishness and the selfishness of virtue. Yes, yeah. that's one of them. And the other one's about art, about the objective. And about of art, exactly, right. So go to the Atlas Society and um, um, see if you can get to that event. You'll love it. It's going to be very dynamic. It's going to be very uh, fun as well. And it's only two or three days, and I'll be there as well. We're welcoming you there. Uh, Rob, uh, I learned a lot. I always learned a lot from your writings. You are so tied into the current literature and the movement that conservatism. Any last thoughts on... This has more to do with our relate. Call it our relationship with conservatives. I, I think you wouldn't say they're a lost cause. Are, are they worthy allies? How would you classify what we do with conservatives now? Well, you know, the conservative movement contains multitudes. It's always been many things. It's always been a co ideological coalition. So yeah. I briefly flirted with calling myself a constitutional conservative at one point because yeah. I'm like, I can get behind conserving the constitution. Um, yeah. But I think that it's your question, the thing you brought up, which is conservatism means, well, what are you trying to conserve? It can mean yeah. different depending on what you're trying to conserve. Right. That's, I think what we need is Americanism. We need, you know, conserving 
what America was originally about and understanding that, which is it was a liberal society. It was an yep. uh, enlightenment society. And then uh, one thing that I think answers what uh, the fellow was just talking about, how do we preserve this, is you know, Reagan's point. We're, we're one generation away. We're always yeah. one you know, immigrants right. or no immigrants. We are always the, the ultimate immigrants are our children, right? They're, they're, they're coming along and they're going to, they are going to replace us. That is the right. real replacement that's happening. They are going to replace us. And so, you know, having the ideas and having understanding the ideas and understanding the history and understanding what it is that made this country great in terms of the ideas that were that were that were embraced and how we can improve those ideas and make them better. That's the important thing uh, to, to make sure that that goes to the next generation. And I think that's the thing that that hasn't been done and things needs to be fixed. Wonderful. Rob, thank you again. Thank you, my friend. Uh, excellent, excellent stuff. Thank you all for joining. We'll talk to you later. Yeah, thanks everybody for coming. This has been great.